Let's do it. Let's have fun. Let's have fun. So I'm here with the one, the only, Dr. James Rouse. Oh my gosh. The man, the myth, the legend. There's only one? There's only one. There is only one. (laughs) There's probably multiple James Rouses, but there's not the James Rouse. Only one that has kale 24-7 in his bicuspid. Yeah. Even after flossing, it's yeah. so deeply embedded. <laughs> it's just, yeah, it's part of you. Yeah. It's just part of me. It's uh, fully integrated. And for those of you that, you know, don't know, I'm sure most of you know that are listening, part of our Scoop tribe, um, co-founder of Scoop, the the chief formulator and the chief ruckus maker. Love that title. And I want to talk all. about that. What Like, I don't even really, I haven't heard the story behind the chief ruckus maker. You know, um, number one, Jackson, thank you. Yeah. It's great to see you. I know you've been traveling all over the country and doing your thing and, uh, I think it's life. kind of what a ruckus is really all about. I, I'm a big believer that um, when I was a younger person, uh, much younger, actually, when I was like seven or eight years old, my grandfather said, you know, you're a bit of a ruckus maker. <laughs> and it, it was, you know, it was probably me getting up with zeal and climbing trees yeah. and creating some chaos in church because I didn't want to be indoors. And uh, so a ruckus usually is something where you sort of associate with being almost like a Tasmanian devil. You're just spinning and creating dust and dirt everywhere you go. I, I like to more see it as an opportunity where ruckus makers today are the ones who are waking up. And when they're waking up, their energy, their, their, their conviction about their dreams and their mission and their purpose, all those things are part of the ruckus making. It's kind of waking ourselves up from the self-imposed slumber party that so many people are living in. Yeah. And that can sound judgmental. It's not intended to be. But I think physiologically, emotionally, and spiritually, so many people are, um, they're playing down. Yeah. And they're playing small. And I know what that feels like. And I think what I see more and more is that the ruckus makers, the ones that are saying, you know what? Enough status quo, enough conformity. I need to wake up and create a ruckus. I want my example of living well and living with intention and living purposefully to be a wake-up call, not just for myself, but for everyone around me. Yeah, I mean, that's so great because you're so right. I think that we, you know, it's it's easy to get pressured into and sucked into the kind of status quo. I mean, that's that's what it means, basically, you know. And uh, I I think what's so important to keep in mind is that there is an alternative to that. And it's amazing, you know, and I'm, I'm kind of learning that I'm very young compared to, to compared to you, you know, uh, although you're not, you're not old. I'm not, I don't mean that in a, in a, in a, in a judgmental. So, well, so politically incorrect. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know. As soon as I came out, I was like, Oh, oh you're not old. You're kind of old, <laughs> but I'm, I'm very young in, yeah. in the scheme of things. And so, well, it, you know, just to kind of catch you in that, you know, Jackson, the fun thing about this whole idea of ruckus making yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm 54, and um, I've created a lot of ruckuses in my yeah. life. I, I spent my, my early 20s walking across India. I spent time in Nepal in my early 20s, long before it was the place to go. This is back in the, in the early 80s. And I, I think what I've learned over the last nearly, gosh, close to 40 years now of being of pushing envelopes, my own personal envelope, is that it's not an age thing. Yeah. It's a consciousness right. thing. And I think all of us have times in our life where we've kind of stepped back. I mean, you were saying before we just got on air here and uh, about your travels and where you were and why you were doing what you're doing. Uh, for anyone who's listening today, I, I think it's, it's really a good idea to question. Yeah. That's part of ruckus making, going, you know, is this working for me? A- am I feeling alive? Am I feeling, if I'm, am I feeling like my life has meaning? And if you're finding that your life is lacking vitality, that's a good time to say, you know, I, I need to create an own ruckus. I, I'm going to begin with my refrigerator. I'm going to open my refrigerator door and go, what's in here that's alive? Yeah. You know, what's in here that's going to make my physiology create its own ruckus? 
who am I hanging out with? Are they, is it conformity? Is it status quo? Is it gossip? Is it complaining? Or is it like possibilitarians? Are you hanging out with possibilitarians? So how do you start that? Like, where do you start? That's a really good question. And I think it starts by really being courageous enough to go inside, spend time alone. Um, My ruckus making started when I was, uh, and this is a great little story here, uh, Jackson. When I was in my early 20s, I moved into a Sufi commune. Mm. Uh, it It was an intentional spiritual community upstate New York completely vegan community on top of that 450 acres of organic farm beautiful and it was an old shaker village built literally hundreds of years ago and um one of my first experiences of ruckus making was me spending 30 days in silence what yeah i know crazy hard beautiful and extremely sobering yeah because i think was for the first 17 18 days is when i had all the chatter which was chronic not enoughness chatter. I don't have enough money. I don't have enough time. I don't have enough intelligence. I'm, I don't have enough of all these things. And I think sometime around the 17th day is when I finally had my, my grandfather used to say, you know, sit still long enough to have your apple juice settle hmm. and then you can see again. Wow. And I think it was day 18 I started to see all the ways that my life was beautiful. And then I put me in a space where I said, okay, I'm going to start leaning into the beauty of my life, not looking at all the ways I'm not measuring up or how I'm not keeping up with, you know, the, the, the proverbial Joneses, the, the, the ridiculous pace of life, which today is even 10 times faster. I think that's where it begins. Sitting still long enough. I, I do a thing every day. I call it forest bathing where I go and sit under a tree for as long as it takes for me to remember who I am. So if I can encourage anyone today, sit still and that's where the ruckus begins. Put your phone away, put social media away, put people away, and go sit under a tree long enough to kind of go, what's your heart telling you? And then start to listen to what it tells you. What was the biggest thing that your heart told you um, on day 18? That I was enough. Yeah? That I, that I had plenty. And it wasn't anything to do with material things. It had to do with the desire. I had a lot of desire to figure out what would make me come alive. And um, being, a, being in this vegan community was part of it. Learning how to meditate was part of it. Learning how to get my hands in soil and grow things was part of it. Um, that's what came up for me. I had everything I needed to create a sustainable, very viable, happy life. And it had nothing to do with the things that I thought were necessary to have all those things. Simplicity was the message. And was, so is that sort of a turning point for you in terms of your life? Uh, or like, was there something that kind of because I want to sort of take it back and learn more about you as a younger person and, mm. and sort of how we got to today. Um, and so, I mean, it's, it's great that you brought up that story because I think that is, is sort of foreshadowing what, what, what we're doing today um, or what you're doing today. But what, was there more things that, that kind of happened um, even younger before that? Totally. That, that sort of started into the path that you're on now? A- absolutely. Uh, it all really began, I think, when I was even a much younger person, uh, like seven, eight years old, where um, I grew up in a family where alcoholism mm. was the norm. And it was so interesting because I didn't even know it was the norm. I just thought it was what everyone did. Yeah. Everyone got really wasted. Yeah. And everyone fought. And everyone didn't get along. And, um, and children woke up and wondered if their parents came home. Yeah. That was kind of what I grew up in. And 
thank goodness I realized, number one, my parents were beautiful people. They just had some struggles. And um, I, I, I love my parents. Um, what I really saw, though, is that there was a level of unhappiness that I took to be our status quo. And I could conform and say, wow, I guess this is what we do. We, we worry. We fight. We, we, we don't work on things. Yeah. We sweep them under the rug. We and self-medicate our yeah, issues. Yeah, we, we self-medicate. We, we pretend everything's okay. Yeah. And it wasn't until I was pr- pretty much into my mid-teens that I started saying, this is crazy town. This is absolutely not working for me. Yeah. But did I get right away with it and go, oh, you know what? So this is crazy town. Stop drinking. No, I decided to become really good at drinking. Mm. That was my way of dealing with it. Well, that's what we do, and I'm going to do it better than anybody. Yeah. So I became an awesome drinker. Yeah, classic. Classic. Um, one of the best. I, we, I, we cons- I consider myself a varsity level drinker. Wow. Yeah, one of the best. And um, why was I doing that? Because I was sad as hell. Yeah. I was such a mess that drinking became a, a really simple escape mechanism. And it seemed to get my, it seemed to help me fit in with the, the nuttiness of my family. So, I, I, you know, it's interesting, you know, fast forwarding into my early 20s from there, I think I had my wake-up call finally. Um, I was actually doing Ironman-level triathlons in my early 20s as a varsity-level drinker. Yeah. And I could get away with both because I was young yeah. and I was stupid and I was egotistical enough where I thought I could do it all. Yeah, I could get hammered. invincible. Yeah, and... get hammered and uh, wake up and go, all right, go, let's go for a marathon run today to sweat all that poison out. And then that night, let's do it all over again. And I was pretty much invincible. Until I realized that it wasn't physical anymore. It became a spiritual thing for me. And no matter how much I trained, no matter how much I drank, I was profoundly sad. Mm -hmm. And that's when I decided to start changing things. And the first thing I changed is I became a sober person. Wow. Congrats. Well, thank you. And it wasn't like, oh, I'm going off to, you know, going to detox. It wasn't like I went off to a dry out center or had someone intervene or had a DUI. I had none of those things, Jackson, but I had one of those beautiful moments where I said, what the hell are you doing? You love exercise. You love eating well. You love God. You're a spiritual guy. And you have this one thing that is so disconnected. Why don't you see what that looks like to pull that disconnection out and be fully integrated? And that's when my real, I tell you, I mean, it almost makes me want to cry. That's when my lights turned on. And that was over 30 years ago. And I am like so stoked to know that, um, number one, all of us can do the work and it all begins with giving ourselves permission to realize you are enough and to think about in your areas of your life. If you have dimmed your light, either systematically or insidiously, don't be afraid to look under the carpet and see what's under there and give yourself permission to change. And what was it like for you to make that decision? Do you remember that day? Yeah, I do. I remember it like it was yesterday. It was profound for me the first night to say no. Yeah. And what did I do that night? I read. I got antsy. I got fidgety. I watched bad TV, trying to medicate with other things. And then I did what I ultimately learned how to do. Sit with the pain. Yeah. Sit with it. Don't try to drink it away because I wasn't going to drink it away anymore. Don't try to mediate away with bad television or a bad movie. Don't hang out with people who are going to try to fill in the space. Sit with your disappointment in yourself. Sit with your dysfunction until you can love yourself enough to stand with it. 
and do it with a type of compassion that you don't leave your soul, leave your own side. Yeah. And that's when it began to really start to feel like this is going to take the rest of my life, but this is going to be really the best work of my life to be my own best friend, to use my own self care as a vehicle for awakening both spiritually and physically, and then allow that to be sort of the beacon of hope that you give yourself every morning when you wake up. It was my own beacon that I had to give myself because it wasn't coming anywhere else. Yeah. And I mean, that's so cool because I think you, it sounds like you sort of realized that, you know, you're, you're separate from, that's not James, the, the, the hardcore drinker, the, you know, crazy man. That's not James. Like you, you, that's just a, a kind of a front. You know? was, there was a layer that I inherited yeah. Jackson yeah. and it was very comfortable. Oh yeah, because it was it's all safe. I knew. It's it was safe. totally safe, and I and I fitted yeah. really, really well with my environment. And realizing how sad I was was the huge aha, because I, I think all of us, and I think everyone who's listening today, I think we all know that there's work to do, whether or not we have enough self love and self compassion to do the work. And what I've learned is that this isn't something you do by getting pissed at yourself. And saying, you suck, you need to change. Yeah. Although that may be part of the work. But the work will never really start to fully take hold and help you to heal until you fall in love deep enough to do the real work of reclaiming your soul. That's where the real work begins. So fast forwarding. You, sure. You do the you know vegan community, silent. Was it a silent meditation? Yeah, yeah. Awesome. And I did it's, it's, it's several thereafter. Yeah. And Loved it. So that, that kind of maybe launched you on this more spiritual path. Uh, then you, you, you mentioned that you walked across India. T- talk about that. That's amazing. That was really, that was really something. Number one, B at that time, long blonde hair. <laughs> I mean, just yeah, <laughs> total, a total hippie ruckus maker. Yeah. And, um, I, I knew that there was something about going to Asia and particularly going to the Himalayas mm. that was deeply moving for me. When I was a little boy, I used to, um, I used to steal or rip pictures of the National Geographic pictures. Anytime they ever did a thing on the, on the Rockies here in Colorado or the Himalayas in Nepal or India, I used to tear those pages out, put them back in the library and go, oh, you know, yeah. stuff them in my pocket. I'd bring them home and I'd paste them up in secret places. Uh. And I would look at those mountain pictures, Jackson, and it would, it would transport me. And I say, oh, you know, someday, someday I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see those mountains for real. Someday I'm going to climb those mountains for real. What is that about mountains? Because I'm the same exact way. Like, I am obsessed with mountains. Like, they are just, like, I, I have, like, a almost like a sexual, like, relationship to mountains. I like, get not it. in a weird, like, that sounds yeah, no, really weird. It weird but it's like it, it, it is a romance. Yeah, it's very romantic. It's very sort of, like, spiritual and, and like, primal. And But, like, I mean, what do you think that is? Like, what do you think that was for you? I think it was for me probably what it is for you. It's, it's, it's a romance I have yeah. with mountains. That's why I live in them today. Yeah. And I believe that what mountains can do for everyone, but ultimately people have that kind of primal connection to mountains, there is an ascension that happens when we look at them. Yeah. And it, you know, call it altitude, call it amplitude, call it elevation. But we ascend when we look at them. And some people do and some people don't. Yeah. But those of us who look at mountains and go, oh my gosh, that's beautiful. And all of a sudden you feel this quickening in your heart and your physiology is starting to go, whoa, that is something to pay attention to. It's real. Oh, it is. And um, so for me, when I set off on my trip to India, my, my trip to the Nepal and to the Himalayas, it was really, a, it was a coming home. Yeah. 
And when I sat in my first snowbank at 17,000 feet on Thronglaw Law Pass, making my way into Annapurna, I, I literally wept. Yeah. Because I was like, oh my gosh, this is so primal for you. And you need to be in these mountains. You yeah. need to just put the snow on your body. You need to, you need to feel what this is all yeah. about. And then when I got a chance to actually spend time at Temboche, which is a beautiful monastery, a Buddhist monastery, on the way to Mount Everest, and I first sat in that monastery, and I asked this question. I, I, there's, there's a monk there. I did this 30-day datu, another 30-day retreat. And there's this beautiful monk. And he was like four foot 12, you know, <laughs> maybe five feet yeah. on, a, on a good day. And um, he was so sweet. And he was so present. I'd never seen anything like that before. And I, and I, and I finished my 30-day retreat. And it took me two more days to actually speak. So it was 30, 33rd day. And I looked at him and I said, um, now what do I do? It was just such a stupid American thing yeah. to say. Now uh, what? Now what? Okay, I, I, I'm here in the Himalayas. I, I, I'm here meditating. I'm here getting all spiritual. I'm here working on my shit. Now what do I do? Yeah. And he said to me, it was the most beautiful response I ever could have asked for. And I look back at it as probably the most game-changing thing anyone's ever said to me. He said, what do you do now? Simply be a rose. And for a young 20-something who was like, that's way too esoteric. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what's the metaphysical behind that? Yeah. And then I said, I said really, uh, with all due respect, tell me what that looks like. He said, when you walk into a garden, does a rose have to call you out and say, hey, check me out. I'm a rose. I'm beautiful. I'm awesome. I'm over here. Look at me. Or... Are you, are you simply drawn to the sweetness in the presence of the beauty of the rose? Wow. <laughs> that's the mic drop. Yeah, that's the mic drop. Yeah. And that's, wow. <clears throat> that's when it all started to make a whole lot more sense. All of us are, are roses yeah. waiting to blossom. We spend so much time putting on our rose which is, do I look hot? Yeah. Am I smart? Am I driving the right car? Do I have the cool clothes on? Do I have this? Do I have the hot girlfriend, boyfriend? Do I have the cool house? Yeah. That's not it. Those are all fine. Yeah. And they can be wonderfully cool. But none of those things are truly sustainable or will they have the kind of meaning and fulfillment unless you, your first self, can sit in your own roseness and allow that beauty to come through you. And that only happens when you become present enough to the beauty of what it is that you're here to do. All those other things are the things that we put on thinking it's what it's about. And I don't want to go on some sort of uh, sermon here. Yeah. But I think that to me was one of the single greatest things I've ever learned in 54 years of living. Be a rose simply means to be who you are. And that will be beautiful. Yeah. God, that is beautiful. I, I love that. And I think that for so many people, I think, yeah, we're, we're, all, we're searching for something that is already there. You know, and we keep and, on looking outside of ourselves. We, yeah, we we buy cl like lots of clothes and cars, and like you said, those things can be great. I love a nice Patagonia jacket or a. Can't you know, wait to get my Patagonia every morning. Yeah, it makes me feel. I rise into my Patagonia. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> right. But that's not that we we can't search externally for that peace or that happiness with those things, and and so I mean it's it's just such an important lesson to know that it's. It's there, but and it's maybe not 
I guess people come to it so differently. You don't have to go to the Himalayas on some spiritual quest to find it, but it's important to find it. You know, it's important to do something in your life to find that fulfillment, to find that, that, that joy or that passion, whatever it may be, um, where you feel kind of in that flow state. And so what is your flow state? My, my personal flow state is, um, it's a very ridiculous routine. I say it's ridiculous because you could ask me, you could say, Hey James, six years from now on Saturday morning at 6am, where will you be? And I can tell you unabashedly exactly where I'll be. I am a huge believer in predictability, hmm. especially when it comes to my morning rituals. Um, gosh, for over 30 years, I have made sure that every single morning I wake up at the same time. Wow. And I have a routine of what I do for the next two hours. And I can tell you, I never, ever, ever miss it. Wow. And that is not me saying, hey, look at me, I'm cool. It's me, look at me, I'm sober. Yeah. Hey, look at me. I put some pretty cool guardrails up to keep me from, from falling off. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> I can tell you that um, if anyone who may be nodding their head right now are going, ah, you know what, that sounds so boring, you know, knowing where you're going to be in six years. I, I can tell you, discipline is freedom for me. That's what I've yeah. learned. Discipline is freedom. Me knowing exactly what I have to do every single morning to get my shit together, my heart and my head integrated, so I can actually show up and be the better version of me, is a lot of work. Yeah. <laughs> it, and I don't, and believe me, I'm a pretty average dude. I, I suffer like everybody else with all the same insecurities and all the same challenges. But because of my unique childhood, I have a greater vulnerability to losing it. Mm. Yeah. And so because of that, I've reinforced with some very, very succinct patterns of living, which is my flow state. I know that if I get up and the first thing I do is say thank you five times before I get out of bed. That's my prayer. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And I've been doing that since I was in my early 20s. I never get out of bed unless I've said thank you five times. I get out of bed and I do lunges on my way to the bathroom <laughs> because I love how it makes my quads feel. Yeah. I'm waking up. And when I brush my teeth, I, I look at myself, what they say in Buddhism, they say, how, always address yourself first thing in the morning with soft eyes, mm. which is the eyes that are not critical, fault-finding, or demeaning. They're compassionate, loving, and accepting. So I brush my teeth with soft eyes. And that may sound like, what the hell does that mean? It simply means that when you open up the, your world and you turn on your light and you're facing yourself in the mirror and you've got your toothbrush, being gentle with yourself. That is the beginning of flow state. Self-acceptance is the igniter for flow. And then immediately upon brushing my teeth, I make my way to my, um, I have a little wonderful cabinet where I have my beets and I've got my breakfast protein. I have my greens. I put all three of those products together in a very wonderful glass of water. I shake it vigorously. I pound it and I get on my spinning bike within five minutes after that. And I spin like hell for 20 minutes. And from there, I go right into a very succinct sort of body weight type weight row program where I'm doing a combination of planks and push-ups and pull-ups. And it's very much like a playground. Yeah. And I'm playing out for like 40 good minutes. And then immediately, I dash to my meditation chair. Because what I've learned, Jackson, is that you, whether you pray, meditate, do mindfulness, or just want to recover, 
don't ever miss the window of flow, which happens right after you done, you're done doing something extraordinary with your physicality, and then you move directly into mindfulness. If you want to see your prefrontal lobe go, holy shit, you are capable of everything. Oh my gosh, look at the visions, look at the intention, look at the courage. Flow is a very, um, it's a very dogmatic experience. You can teach yourself flow. The key is leaning all the way into it and doing it with such a level of purpose that it becomes something that your brain and your body and your heart go, what are we going to do today in flow? It's not whether I'm going to get in flow. It's what am I going to do when I'm in flow? And so when I get out of my meditation, 20 to 30 minutes of meditation, uh, I immediately go and make myself a kick-ass breakfast to seal in the neurochemistry of what I've created in that first hour and a half. And then I get a chance to go out there and rock my life. Yeah. You're but setting the, yourself up for success. Oh, my gosh. Every day. I, I, I literally, you know, I, I, we have a little saying in my house. You want to be invincible? Love yourself deeply. You want to be invincible? Yeah. You want to be a superhero? Love yourself deeply. So my two hours of my self-care is my self-care love affair, which allows me to create flow. So when I leave my experience at 4, it's been now 6.30 in the morning, started at 4.30, my kids are waking up for school, my wife is rallying, I'm rallying, I'm the kind of dad, the kind of husband, the kind of human being I want to be. And I do not want to miss that every single morning. And again, people would say, well, that seems really boring, that seems so programmatic, that seems so like, you know, rote. You bet it is. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. And I mean, the, the way I see that is that I think a lot of people, including myself, a lot of times are searching for that flow state. We're like, oh, like I'm like addicted to that flow state, but sometimes it's really hard for me. And, and I guess for people that don't even know what flow state is, it's just that feeling of like absolute presence and focus and where you just feel you're like yourself, you're alive, you're doing exactly what you want to be doing. But it's it can be hard to find. But what you're doing is you're like, it, hacking is the wrong word, but you're you're sort of like, you're, 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 you're initiating and, and just making absolutely positively sure that you are going to get engaged into that flow state every single day, because when you're in your flow state, you do your best work like that. It's just only always, only always, you know? (laughs) And so I I think the, the way I see it, it's, it's not boring or programmatic. It's just two hours out of the 24 of your day, but that sets you up for being the best human being you can possibly be. And that right there, Jackson, is gold. Because that is gold. so many people, you're right, I got to go to the Himalayas to get in flow. Yeah. I got to go knock out an Ironman to yeah. get in flow. If I, don't, if I don't get on that 14er by sunrise, I suck. Yeah. And I miss my exactly. flow. Listen, I, I'm a regular guy with a really great marriage and some really cool kids, and my life is extremely regular. But what's irregular is the absolute connection I've had to the addiction of self-care and what flow can do for me as an entrepreneur, as a friend, as a father, as a husband, as a lover. I'm, I'm a better version of me knowing that that ritual is bulletproof. It's a 100% non-negotiable that never doesn't happen. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, I want to talk about how you sort of got into the business world, into the entrepreneur space um, which sort of led into the, you know, birth of healthy scoop, Mm. um, because I know you've had some other ventures previously and since, and you, um, you know, kind of there, there's a lot of space in between the Himalayas and now. So (laughs) I'm I'm trying to fill in the gaps. Yeah. You know, um, when I was, when I was, um, when I get back from uh, my experiences in Asia, 
I, 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 I love food, and I, I've always been a very big uh, fan of gardening. Mm. So when I uh, did my experience in the um, with Sufi community, I was part of. I, I gardened. I was in the. I was in the healing garden, which was the herbs, the you know the calendula, the ginseng, and all the different things. I had my hands in the dirt. And I, I fell in love with the idea of, of vegetables and herbs and all the different cool things that I felt when I was out in the garden. And um, so basically between now and then, um, it was an odyssey of really trying to figure out human performance and the, the place of food and, and physicality and meditation and how the, the confluence of those three worlds could really help me to feel like this idea of human potential and, and potentially, potentially realizing it, oh my gosh. So I started reading Maslow. I started reading everything I get my hands on that talked about transpersonal psychology and about you know, superhuman performance and endurance and all those things. And um, when, I went off to, when I went off to naturopathic medical school, it was very much under the guise that I need to understand the science behind human performance. And while I was there, I, I ran a restaurant that, is that sorry to interrupt? Is that is that why you you went to naturopathic medical school? Was this fascination with human potential? Is that sort of yeah, what catalyzed that interest? Yeah, I, okay. I, you know, and, and and I think allopathic medicine is fabulous and has its place, and I think integrative medicine is really the future. Yeah, because I think lifestyle medicine is where this country needs to understand how powerful it is. Totally. So we can complement the allopathic. Yeah. We can complement the integrative. They, they all should work together in harmony. Totally. And what is complementary medicine? It's simply sleeping well, it's eating well, it's thinking well, it's being a good version of you by honoring your own self-care. I think so often what I saw, and I certainly saw it with my family, and I saw it with my dad in particular, my, my dad had no self-care ethic. And he was diagnosed with diabetes and heart disease in his early 40s. Uh, my dad passed away uh, in his 50s due to the fact that he absolutely depended on heroic interventions yeah. to save him where if he had just given himself permission to love himself enough where he could then start to edge moving and saying, oh, wow, that's interesting how I feel when I don't have a gallon of ice cream before bed. Oh, it's interesting how I feel when I walk, when I'm stressed versus going home directly home and watching the evening news. This is all part of integrative medicine. Yeah. So for me, when I was going through school, I wanted to be a part of a movement to see how food could work. So I, I started a restaurant with a couple of friends, including my wife, called the Common Sense Cafe. Hmm. And we were a completely vegan restaurant in Portland, Oregon, back in the early 90s, wow. before it was cool. Yeah. And um, the reason for doing that, I, I was in school, I was studying family medicine, I was studying integrative medicine, I was like, I wanna see what happens around food. Yeah. And I wanna see what happens when people are connecting a community around food. And that really set me in this motion of uh, everything I want to do as a, as a doctor, as an entrepreneur, as a person, was be around the movement of self-care, the base, the food, the community, the fellowship, the idea making, and all the integration that can happen. And I haven't seen it happen any more powerfully than I have in sort of the, the intentional farming, sustainable farming world, mm -hmm. and serving amazing food that people go, I just feel good when I'm here. Is it the community? Is it the food? It's all these things. Yeah. But underneath all of that is the intention to say, hey, and, and I guess, you know, I'd ask listeners today, ask yourself a simple question. This is what I was asking myself when I started this whole experience. What makes you come alive? What makes you feel possible? And when are you feeling the most purpose-filled? And then start to fill in the blanks. 
when you can really give yourself permission to stop and well, slow down enough to answer those questions, you will start to see, as I did, that there's something about the experience of human potential where food and fellowship and people and meaning and all these different things have a wonderful collision. And that's where I choose to dance every day, where all those things collide. And that's what I've known over the last 30 years now of being in and out of entrepreneur world, having a family practice, raising a family, and all the things I've done is that each and every day, I'm kind of sitting in the middle of all those experiences, and I'm building something that makes me feel more possible each and every day. And I am always in beta, Jackson. I can tell you, uh, one thing I, I never will call myself is an expert of anything. Yeah. I'm a student of everything. Yeah. I'm an expert in nothing. And I am continually in beta when it comes to how I choose my foods, how I choose to exercise, how I choose to um, show up and be present as much as I can. And how I fail at that every day is my opportunity to workshop on it. Are you a fan of, of discomfort, of, of uh, like allowing yourself to delve into uh, the unknown in terms of, of discomfort? Because I'm a, I'm a strong believer in that dancing on that line between comfort and discomfort is where the magic happens. Absolutely. Have you had experiences where that's I, I try to make my life yeah. un uncomfortable almost every single moment yeah. of my life. And I mean that. I, I that, that morning ritual I shared a moment ago, it's really uncomfortable. Yeah. My exercise program is extremely uncomfortable. <laughs> it kicks my ass. And I have not... There's many mornings when I'm, I'm carrying my... I do these wind sprints on my driver, which is a very steep incline. Mm -hmm. And I'll grab these two... 15 to 20 pound dumbbells in either hand and I do wind sprints carrying these dumbbells and there's not a time where after three or four of those I am literally face down in my driveway it can be 12 degrees out and I got my face on the tar <laughs> I'm going shit I'm I'm I'm, I'm baked here yeah. and then I could get myself up and do a couple more and the whole time I'm doing I'm going god I wonder what's happening in my physiology right now I wonder what's going on with my brain-derived neurotropic factor I wonder what kind of neurons are being you know brought into my experience right now I love that stuff. Yeah. And you're right. I, I think that so, it's so interesting in our country right now, there's this weird affinity towards being comfortable. Yeah, exactly. Like homeostasis is where it's at. Well, I'm, I'm all about having homeostasis when it comes to, you know, your circulation and your blood pressure and all those things. But my goodness, I am so not about it when it comes to your physicality and your emotional and spiritual yeah. well-being. Walk the edge. Yeah. Push your edge. Make yourself at night go... Whoa, holy, wow, that was, because if you want to sleep deep, live deep. Yeah. You, if you want to sleep really peacefully, the only way you're going to do that is having pushed your edges all day long. What creates anxiety and the inability to really shut it down at night is because you wondered whether or not if you really showed up. Yeah. I mean, it, you're not going to grow <laughs> if you're just, you know, always at that perfect, you know, 70 degrees temperature, uh, you know, in your house or you're, you're like, oh, I'm just, I, I can only run, you know, easy, like at, you know, you know, very conversational pace or, um, uh, you know, I could try this really awesome business idea I have, but it's so much more safe to just get this desk job that I want, you know, and, and not saying that any of those things are inherently bad, but I think that us as a society are often afraid of taking those kinds of risks that could project us into awesomeness and really extreme fulfillment and purpose. 
um, because it is scary, but mm-hmm. that's what makes it so fun. That's, that's what life's all about is that, that uncertainty of delving into the unknown, which will either make you fail and then you try something different or it creates an amazing experience for you. And I, I think I just wish more, I mean, I'm, I'm so grateful that I have started to realize that at the, the young age of 23 in a lot of ways, but, uh, it's, it, it's addicting. It's addicting and it's, um, scary and it's super fun, but I want, and, and it's something that I try to tell all my friends and family that like, there's this other way. And, um, I don't know. I don't really know where I was going with that, but it's like, I'm agreeing with you. I, I think I know where you're going <laughs> is that you really are encouraging everyone that you connect with that don't allow yourself to initiate this slumber party yeah. as the way you live your life. Yeah. Most we have peop- one, we have one life. We have we, one we, chance we, at this whole game. You do. And most people think it's about getting into a comfortable place financially, physically, in, in your relationships. And I, I don't want to discount the power of being comfortable in your own skin. But what makes you comfortable in your own skin is being wildly uncomfortable in the way you go after your life. Yeah. That's the key. And it sounds almost like, wait a second, there's a, parad- there's a definite paradox there. You want, if you want to be comfortable in your own skin, live your life wildly uncomfortable. Yeah. See what you've got in your tank. Make yourself look at your life in such a way where you start to realize that if you want your life to outpicture the kind of amazingness that really physiologically we're all geared to have, you need to look at yourself square in the eye and say, one day, one time now, I'm going to ask myself what makes me come alive. And if you look around and do a little interior decorating, you see who you're hanging out with, what you're listening to, what you're watching, what you're eating, how you're moving or not moving, you will get a very good understanding of whether or not your life will be phenomenal or very familiar in a way that absolutely makes you feel like you cashed out way too young, way too early, and you didn't show up for what was here for you. Yeah, beautifully said. Um, so shifting into entrepreneur, Dr. James. Yes. Uh, how did Scoop start? Scoop started because I have a passion for plants. Yeah, I, I Period. do too. I do too. <laughs> you're, you're talking to the right guy. I, 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 I know <laughs> I am, and I tell you, for me, um, what I've seen clinically with my patients, what I've seen me um, personally in my years of sort of trying out different ways of living and eating, uh, Scoop for me was a way of creating an experience for people to have access to a lifestyle that they don't have to be vegans, they don't have to be plant-based people. All they have to know is that, wow, I understand that there's a lot of good science that says eating more plants is really good for you. It may extend your life, may it help you to prevent many diseases, may actually help you to live more wildly and wonderfully uncomfortable. Yeah, just feel good. And just feel really, really good. So when I started uh, the Scoop experience with my, with my partners, it was really based on the idea of, of creating a human performance laboratory in the form of powder. Yeah, human Let, performance powder. It's human performance powder. Putting this in your body helps to ignite a physiology of possibility. Yeah. And these ingredients have been very, very methodically chosen to have almost this wonderful orchestration of possibility. When you put them in your body, Jackson, your body goes, oh, whoa, this is what it's like to actually have the fuel that allow me to go after what I'm looking for. This will help me to have the focus so I can actually move in the direction I want to. And as an entrepreneur, as someone who's, who's, who's been a part of several startups in my life, the thing I know about entrepreneurial activity, it's not limited to business. Yeah. Your life is a startup. Yeah. Every single day when you wake up, you are in startup mode. And you can say to your morning, it's either good morning, God, or it's good God morning. <laughs> and you know what? That's the beginning of your startup. 
Yeah. Are you a victim or are you going to be a victor? Are you going to be a possibilitarian or someone's holding back and saying, you know what? I'm just going to mail it in today. I don't feel like it. That's entrepreneurial activity. I just happen to turn it into a business. I want to parlay it into something where I could say, wow, if we can get these experiences out to as many people as possible and have an a, a experience to go along with a project produce where we're actually feeding kids and teaching them about self-care, then to me, there's no better startup in the world. And I have been told many times that I'm a delusional optimist because of what I love to do and because of scoops. But that's so delusionally optimistic. You can't feed kids and you can't, you can't make vegan protein organic powders taste good. Well, you know what? Just watch us. Yeah. Just watch us. We fed nearly 100,000 kids last year. We are moving our entire business across the entire country. We are working with conventional grocers because I'm a big believer this isn't just a left of center movement totally this is right square in the bullseye of where people are sitting and the vulnerability of our country right now is that we are underfed and overnourished we are we are overfed and undernourished we are overfed and undernourished we got to figure out the ROI behind our food and and how we go about this the return on your intention how do you want to feel after you eat energized awake alive possible or do you want to feel like you want to take a nap? You feel like you've been beaten up. You feel like you're craving sugar. You feel like you can't get out of your own way. The ROI is when, when you open your refrigerator door every morning, ask yourself a simple question. What would love do now? And then you will choose what you choose. But if you are sincere in answering that question, you will choose something that's going to give you the ROI that's going to allow you to go out there and light it up. So talk about, you know, what makes Scoop special and different, you know, because there, there's, it's, it's, it is, uh, you know, it's a huge market right now. Yeah. The, the powders and the, the greens and the, especially the protein powders. Um, but like what for you is, is the, the coolest part about Scoop? I, I think there's two cool things. Uh, I'm really psyched about how we source from farmers who are very intentional about the organic practice of farming. That's a huge part of yeah. our world. And I'm a very, 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 very passionate supporter of of small local farming i think it's just kick-ass and cool and the people who are behind this are usually unbelievably servant oriented people they are there to serve they are there to build things they're there to help us to have access to something that they're passionate about and i think also what i love about scoop is that when i formulate i want to make sure there's efficacious levels of what's in there and that's a great word basically says it's meaningful yeah you know, you can look at a lot of companies and nothing disparaging. There's all kinds of wonderful companies. A lot of companies have chosen the path of this unbelievable looking label. Oh my gosh, there's like a hundred ingredients of all these amazing things. And you, and then you do the fine look, you go, wow, there's basically none of much that will ever make a difference. It's, yeah. I call it pixie dust approach. Yeah. When we chose our ingredients and I chose to formulate the products we did, they're based on efficacious levels of meaningful ingredients that will literally help you to feel better to help you become the best version of you. So I love to say that we are functional food that truly functions at a level that is efficacious and meaningful. And uh, so I guess you you started Scoop. Um, when, when, did, when did you start Scoop? Well, I think we now, we're going into our fourth year, I believe, and we were more direct selling for the first few yeah. years, which was most of an online business. We had these wonderful ambassadors all over the country. And then uh, just over a year ago, we decided to go into the retail space so we could, again, bring the products to a greater population. But we still have an incredibly robust online community who loves our products and um, buys direct. 
But um, you know, I think the direction of Scoop we're seeing now, and it's really fun because uh, innovation's my passion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and powders are the foundation of our business, but I think you're going to see over the next few months and over the next few years unbelievably cool ways of delivering the Scoop um, promise in ways that really delight and surprise our, our customers and our guests and our tribe and our movement. What have been some of your biggest challenges or hardest moments as an entrepreneur? I think the hardest thing of all was trusting through the dark nights. Yeah. Um, Optimism. Optimism, not giving up. Um, If anyone who's been on an entrepreneurial experience knows that there are really, really cool highs and there are devastating lows and they happen every day. Yeah. It's just part of what you sign up for. Um, And maybe it's part of that whole idea of being uncomfortable. If you are thinking about being an entrepreneur and you want to be comfortable, it doesn't work that way. This business at times makes me feel really sad and really scared, but more often than not, it makes me feel extremely grateful and really happy. And that's part of what you do with a startup. You ride the wave. And because we are a premium product, because we are organic, and because we have all these amazing ingredients that really do, how should we say, separate us from most of the space that we're playing in, um, it's harder. Yeah, It's just harder. And um, you can make crap taste really good. Mm-hmm. But if you want to make something that's really good for you, taste really good, that's a whole other level of intention. And those are the things that keep me up at night. Yeah. Do we taste good enough for most people to want to enjoy us? Are we doing the right thing so more, we can get more and more people involved with our plant-based mission? Are we doing enough to make sure we feed enough kids with Project Produce? All those things make me uncomfortable and make me alive. And I think for me, the hardest thing I've learned over these years as an entrepreneur is that um, you have to have a grittiness and a trust in yourself, and then you have to associate with an amazing team of other co-creatives who have the same level of delusional optimism that you do, and then you may have a chance to be successful. And we have a very small team here at Scoop, and Jackson, you're part of it. We are a very, we're a very optimistic group of people. And we are really, really nice people. I like to say that we're nice people. This is a very nice company. And I know it sounds kind of like milk toast, <laughs> but there's a lot to that. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot about who you hang out with is who you become. Yeah. What's that quote? It's like, you are the average of the five people or the six people that you spend the most time with. It's so true. It's so true. And there was a study that was done on grit recently where they said, you know, we've talked a lot about grit with West Point. We talked about grit with different success and entrepreneurs. But one of the things they've just realized over the last two months, the latest research on grit says a huge part of grit is absolutely related to who you hang out with. It has, that has so much to do with what happens to yeah. you. So you better, each other. you better associate with a tribe of co-creators who are co-believers and people who are not afraid to challenge you and encourage you and, and push you. Yeah. Because if you're hanging out in comfort zones, there's a good chance that you will not be successful, at least when it comes to your grit. And I think in terms of starting businesses that have a purpose and have a mission, you are going to ultimately be tested by your tribe. And if your tribe is awesome, you have a pretty good chance of creating awesome. Yeah, it's the the tribe and the community is is so huge, and uh, I think, yeah, even in a, even in a business environment, I think people don't really realize how important that, important that is, you know, and um, and that's I think what's so cool about Scoop, and, and and even just beyond Scoop, but just sort of the the bolder, you know, food world. It's it's like this really awesome community, and um, and I just it's it's awesome to be a part of it, and it's awesome to see sort of how scoop is is leading the charge in terms of this 
human potential powder. And, and I think that's a great way to, to do it. I want to talk a little bit um, before we start to kind of wrap it up, because I know you're, you're a busy man. You probably got a million things on the on the agenda today. But uh, exercise. Mm. What is so I know you have a little bit of a background in bodybuilding. You went yeah. through a bodybuilding phase. Yeah. And then in, into the, you know, Ironmans. I'm not sure exactly which came first. But talk a little bit about your background in, in exercise and and sort of your approach to exercise and what your best advice is for exercise and for training athlete or non-athlete or more recreational athlete. Beautiful. Um, yeah, I started off uh, in my teens lifting weights mm -hmm. and it was about me overcoming my my low self-esteem. I was going to build my body yeah. and I fell in love with Arnold Schwarzenegger and I was all about following Arnold's example of, you know, doing the push-ups, doing the bench presses, doing all the things. And, you know, I'm going to call it more one dimensional, one plane exercise where it's about pushing weight. And, um, that lasted a good decade. Mm. And then I decided that, um, I think I saw on, in 1980, I saw a clip on Wide World of Sports, and this is some people are in their 50s like, oh yeah, I remember Wide World of Sports. Jackson, it was this Saturday afternoon TV show that just kind of spanned the globe and found, and they did a quick piece on Iron Man, mm. 1980. And I remember going there, oh my gosh, that looks awesome. I'm gonna do an Iron Man. The next year, I signed up for my first Iron Man. Wow. And um, I had no business doing it. Number one, and everyone goes, who's in triathlon today? They go, oh my gosh, there's triathlon. Co Here in Boulder, was there maybe 100 triathlon coaches? Oh, yeah. It, maybe there's 1,000? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's everywhere. This is 1980 in Vermont. Yeah. No one even heard of triathlon, let alone a coach. I literally saw that show, and there was no computer, so I couldn't like you know Google triathlon yeah. training. I just started running and biking and swimming with no idea what I was doing. And I showed up for my first race, literally have no understanding of what it was going to take. And I remember getting about 20 yards out into the swim in this lake, my first open water swim in my life, because I'd always swim in a pool, and I freaked out. I was like, I'm dizzy, I'm scared, I'm hyperventilating, my heart rate is racing. Yeah. Holy shit. I'm going to turn around. I'm going to get out of this water. I forget this. Yeah. And my mom was hanging out on the beach. Yes. Single mom, amazing person. Yeah. And she saw me dog paddling and starting to turn around, making my way back. And she started yelling, you can do it. You can do it. And I remember just, and I stopped and I started treading water again. I was like, all right. And I just started dog paddling. I was the last one out of the water, but I finished the swim. Yeah. And I got out of my bike, and long story short, I finished my first Ironman. And um, I was hooked. And for the next decades, wow. I did Ironman. Now I'm kind of doing a combination of endurance training with some fitness work and some interval training. I'm kind of rolling all into what I call today, and this is my advice to anyone, whether you're a seasoned athlete or whether you're somebody who's... Uh, uh, just getting used to the idea of actually calling yourself someone who's an exerciser. Play. Yeah. My whole thing, and this is what I learned probably after a decade of Ironman, when I took off my watch and stopped checking where I was is when I started to enjoy where I was. When I was younger doing Ironman, I used to always base my happiness on whether or not I was at a split time that I thought was respectful. And if it wasn't, I'd beat myself up until I gained the time back, Yeah, which absolutely only sucked all the time. 
And then I was like, you know what? This isn't any fun anymore. What's not fun? You thinking you always have to be on your game all the time and hitting a certain level of performance. And then I took off my watch and I did the next decade of endurance work with no watch and had no idea where I was. And I started having a ball. And that's how I train today. I never wear a watch. I couldn't care less what my time is, but I play full out every morning. And it has everything to do with the joy of movement as opposed to whether or not I'm finishing at a certain level. Did I podium? Did I get something that, you know, gave me the accolades of being at a certain level of performance? My level of performance now is whether or not my smile factor is in alignment with how hard my heart is racing after the joy of kicking my own ass every single morning all by myself. And I love training on my own because I love seeing what I can create for myself. And the joy of crawling back into the house after two hours of knuckle knucklehead play is one of my greatest joys. God, I mean, I love that because I'm I'm sh- I'm shifting more and more every day towards that as well. Where it's it's like I I am a cyclist and I love just riding my bike in the mountains and exploring and riding some dirt road that you know I get a flat tire. I'm in the middle of nowhere and I'm like changing it and just like laughing because it's I'm in such a beautiful place and and I see so many people you know stuck in the gym because they think that they have to go you know they have to exercise they have to work out. So they go on the elliptical and they just, the whole time they're so disengaged from it, they don't enjoy it, but it's like they have to do it, you know, for whatever reason, for the body, for the calories, whatever. But I think it's all about that mindset shift of, of doing it for enjoyment, for play, for the love of it. And, and I love that you can still do that even as an elite athlete, even as uh, someone that is racing or competing at a high level, you can still do it for the right reasons. And I love talking to people that have that figured out because I'm still trying to figure it out. You know, I still am obsessed with Strava and the times <laughs> and the, the power and the whatever, the splits. But I also really cherish that adventure and that and and that thing. And, you know, a motto kind of that I live by every day and it's sort of applied to everything we've talked about is do epic shit. And that is applies to exercise, to getting uncomfortable, to business, to food, whatever it is, like, it's just, I think the embodiment of do epic shit is that it's so much better when you just go for it and you, and you do it for the love, you do it for the right reasons and you don't look back, you know? So epic to me is one of the coolest words in the world. I love it. It's my favorite word. Because what epic really (laughs) means for me, it simply means being present for the highest version of you. Yeah. And whatever, we're all capable it, of it. it. We're all capable of it. And, and you know, and this isn't about like comparing yourself to someone else who's this elite athlete who did this certain thing at a certain time. Your epic is a wonderful personal experience of what makes you come alive. Yeah. When I when I prepare breakfast in the morning, it's epic. Because oh, yeah. I'm so into what I'm doing. And I think to myself, oh my gosh, I'm done with breakfast. But what, what am I going to do? Well, I'm going to do this. So, man, I'm going to add in some more hemp seeds. I'm yeah. going to throw in an extra tablespoon of ground flax. I'm going to throw in two tablespoons of my breakfast protein from Scoop. Because I know when I'm done with this, I want to be epic for that phone call I'm going to do for that coaching session. But more importantly, I want to be epic at the end of the day when my kids come home from school and I'm an epic dad. Because yeah. I give them an epic hug. Because I'm present enough, I'm conscious enough, I'm awake enough and aware to know that that hug is what they live for when they come through the door. They're just out there doing their epic day of high school, which is really, really hard these days. They walk through the door 
I want to be an epic present called their father. Not a dude who has his face in a phone, yeah. who's completely out of touch with what really is epic anymore. Presence is epic. You being awake enough to give yourself permission to be wildly uncomfortable, to go against the grain of everybody else who is so unpresent for all the cool shit that's happening all day long because they're complaining, they're gossiping, they're either physiologically underperforming because they're eating crap all day long. And I know I'm in a little bit of a rant right now. Do but it. I'm going to tell you, on. I'm ranting. <laughs> because your self-responsibility is hinging on everything that you have dreamed about your whole life long. And if you're going to give your power away to a comfortable idea of what your life will look like when you think that Epic is going to be comfortable, then I got to tell you, you are absolutely signing up for the wrong opportunity. Yeah. The opportunity means that you are going to be wonderfully scared when you wake up in the morning because your heart's racing about what kind of shit you're going to get stirred up in your own mind, in your own heart, and then how you're going to present it to the world. That right there is your responsibility of being a human being. And if you're a human being declaration in your contract to say, you know what, when all is said and done, I'm going to be so wildly awake and so wonderfully fulfilled about what I did with my life, you're going to be uncomfortable every single day the rest of your life and I say be grateful for it be awake to it and embrace it because you will be wonderfully happy because of it that is the most epic way to end this conversation <laughs> uh, I want to ask a few little rapid fire questions absolutely though. favorite meal ah favorite meal avocado fresh freshly opened a hunk of um that perfect avocado. That though. perfect okay. avocado that. Yeah. with a nice sprinkling of pink Himalayan sea salt, a beautiful heavy tablespoon of turmeric sprinkled on top of it. Eat it just like it's an ice cream cone. Oh, man. I'm going to try that as soon oh, as I get home. Oh, my gosh. It's over the moon. And sometimes, even at night, I'll sprinkle in some raw cacao uh, nibs Ooh, on top of saucy. it. And it's basically like having an ice cream sundae. Uh, favorite book? Whew. Or one Bhagavad Gita. Bhagavad Gita. Okay, good. I, I haven't read it. I should probably read it. I can tell you, just a little spoiler alert, Bhagavad Gita was the only book that Nelson Mandela brought to prison. Wow. Because he believed it was the only thing that would help him get through prison. Profound. Profound. And Gandhi carried the Bhagavad Gita everywhere he went. As you all know, Gandhi walked across India several different times. He carried one book, the Bhagavad Gita. That's all that needs to be said. One epic thing you want to do before you die. Seven summits. Ooh. I talked to my wife about it Love last it. night. Love and it. Um, I am going to begin. Um, I've been in the Himalayas several times. I'm going to start uh, once our youngest daughter is finished with high school and I have that experience into college. I'm going to start knocking off a summit a year and I hope to be done by age 64. Can I come with you? You can. Yes. Yeah. Um, all right. Let's do it. <laughs> well, I'm, sign me up. I'm, yeah. I, that's something that I really want to do as cool. well. Cool. Cool. Uh, I, and I am absolutely dedicated to that all right well this might this next question might be in built in with that but if you could go anywhere in the world right now uh where would you go and why galapagos galapagos island all right. yeah and I, I i for many reasons um the wildlife there the combination of what's going on on the island and is what's going on in the ocean it's a confluence of the most vibrant ecosystem in the entire world and who knows how long it's going to be yeah. here I need to go there and be a part of it, hopefully, so I can leave there and tell everyone how amazing it is so we can hopefully raise the awareness to protect it. God forbid it's not, and I get a chance to see it before it starts to change. Greatest fear. Not measuring up to I know it's possible. 
That's it. That's beautiful places to, to stop. I wanna, I'm going to give you a hug. All right, brother. Thank Great. you, Tiger. So appreciate Jackson. I appreciate you. Yeah. Thanks again. And uh, uh, man, yeah, let's do it again sometime. You got it. It was an honor. Thank you.